A reading from Galatians. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For, though the law I, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Do we have lyrics for this? Great. crucified with Christ I have been crucified with Christ let's try that again I have been crucified with Christ I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer who I live but Christ who lives in me. Let's do that again. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer who I live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live my faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, who loved me and gave himself for me. crucified with Christ I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh I live my faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved 
himself for me. Thank you, Jonathan, for playing that. That is, as I was um, preparing for this week, that song from the Wagon Wheel, if you want to listen to it. I believe it's on Spotify, but not on Spotify. Uh, it's on YouTube, um, uh, where you just have to watch it play. Um, but it came to me, and it's with music that I think we get these new connections in our head with, with verses. The kids are invited to kids church with Emily today. Psalm 23 for them this morning, which is another beautiful short passage to consider musically as well as non-musically. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up his very life for our sins so that he might snatch us out of the present evil age, just in act, thus acting in accordance with the intention of God our Father. Amen. This is the opening of, of verse 5 to the book of Galatians, but I keep reading it every Sunday because I think it lays out for us themes that will continually show up in the book of Galatians and will help us understand the book of Galatians better. First, the grace which shows up in today's passage in, in 2, 15 through 21, that, that Paul is continually returning to this grace, this goodness for us that comes outside of ourselves. Peace is, is one of these ones that continually shows up throughout Paul's letter, particularly this welcome, grace and peace. Now, it's one of my uh, favorites, favorite um, intros to the New Testament. It's called The Moral Vision of the New Testament by Richard Hayes. And he tried to take all the themes that appear in each book of the New Testament. And he noticed that love, uh, although it appears in Galatians, does not appear in every book of the New Testament. And so could you say that's a massive theme of the New Testament? But it was a, a scholar, um, I love that book, but it was a scholar who I was talking to from um, a different seminary who said he, he pointed out to, to Richard that the theme that he missed that is in all the books of the New Testament is peace. Um, peace had, peace is, it, you can forget because in many places it appears in this intro um, in all of the Pauline letters, but it's important to Paul that he always names grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The second theme, which will show up again today, is that he gives his very life for our sins. That God rescues us from our sins and our sinful life. And this is something that the Galatians would be familiar with. But the, but the second one, which I think Paul adds, particularly in this letter, that they can now begin to grasp with, is that he might snatch us, take us out of the grasp of the present evil age. Now for me, in my sort of... Um, growing in the faith, and I think a lot of us go through this, and, and to be fair, I think Paul would say we live with this each day to some degree, is that we start to live in the flesh and to say that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what God has done for me is somehow about this first exchange that he takes away my sins, and that and somehow I live this life in the flesh without Christ living in me. And not to say that I don't think Christ was living with me when I lived that way, but that in some sense, it's nice that God has worked out uh, uh, the money stuff, but I need to live my life the way that I would live my life. And so what Paul, in naming that this age, as we see it now, is evil, 
is meant to bring to mind, and this is what we sang and what Paul says to us, is that it is now not I who live in this flesh, but it is Christ who lives in me. That we take ourselves out of acting in this age that is bent towards violence and sin and, and addiction and depression and anxiety um, and strife and discord and in hatred, but put ourselves into the new age that Christ has begun. And so much so that when we die to that which was before us, when we die to that, it is Christ now who lives in us. We'll go through the passage that, that we read and, and that Jonathan's saying, but that, that for Paul, he dies to his highest good. We often think of that we die to these other things, but when Paul says, I died to the law, he doesn't think he's died to a bad thing. He's died to the best thing he could have thought of before he was captured by Christ, before Christ's revelation struck him. So often... Um, in in my uh when you would go forward down the aisle you would often think of how you're leaving behind all the bad things that might keep you back and it is surely clear that christ wants to free us from those that's that first passage but paul in dying to the law also dies to the best thing he can think of so often we don't think of the things which mirror themselves as positives in our life as potential things which we might also have to die to, to live this life for Christ. Um, so this is uh, our fourth Sunday in the book of Galatians. Um, this is Paul, um, and what Paul has done so far is in that passage we just read, introduced the themes of his gospel and also brought them to worship. That passage ends with amen, and the Galatians who heard that probably would have responded amen when, when the reader the reader, which as I've tried to say is you heard Galatians before you read it, um, particularly in this context, the reader, and the reader was probably one of Paul's um, catechists, one of Paul's disciples who would read it with knowing Pauline emphasis. And so when they said amen and he said, how quickly are you abandoning the gospel which you gave us? That would almost come as like a um, slap to the face or reality check, more a slap to the face is insulting, more like a, whoa, that just changed. Something just happened here. We were, we were receiving this letter from this guy we thought was one of our friends and uh, has taught us this gospel. Some other guys, and this is part of the theme of Galatians, have come to give us some additives to this gospel because his seemed a little too easy. But now he's mad at us. Um, we're trying to do better. And he starts after he brings them to worship with this idea as you're abandoning the gospel that I've handed on to you. And one of the things that we are, are continually coming to in Galatians is what is the gospel that Paul has advanced for them? In these early sections in that next session, Paul is very important that this gospel did not come through human transmission, but through God to him, and in, a way, in that way to God to others. This is not a human tradition, and Paul is going to play this, this, this sort of war with the human traditions of sort of the law or the works um, in Galatians and begin to try and talk about um, what does it mean to be freed from those things. Because for Paul in Galatians, and this is one of the themes I'm excited to get to, and it's alluded to in this first, the second sermon, I think, is this distinction between freedom and slavery. That when we try to take other things onto the gospel, even the good things, we remake ourselves slaves. Those who want to go back to Egypt, 
those who want to go back to the slavery in which they existed, rather than to live the free lives that call, God has called us into. But that was that second thing. And so he wants to be clear, this comes from another spot. But after he, he says that, and this passage ends sort of this first part of Galatians that we read today, he does a sort of an object lesson in telling a story about first how he received the gospel in Damascus, but second about how he has used or how this gospel, one, was then grew in him and grew in his churches, so much so that he goes to the Jerusalem church, the mother church, and they have accordance together on what this gospel is. But what happens is then they begin to, to backslide. And people come who want to ramp this up to more seriousness. And not seriousness isn't the right word, is that you get to participate in this more. I think that's one of the things, as this time I've been going through Galatians, is how much more the gospel additives are more about you being able to be a bigger actor in this. It's faith and something else. It's faith with um, some sort of, of work or some sort of distinction or some sort of, uh, in, in Peter's case, which that next section was, is we don't as hang out with those people. Those people make us dirty. Those people, table fellowship with those people needs to be corrected in some ways. And they need to get their stuff in order to be able to participate in this fellowship as well. And it's not uh, hard to see how easy this is for us to fall for in a world of amazing self-help um, from dieting to productivity to all this other stuff. And this is not to say that that sort of rivals in our faith, but just to say that like you have a job and somebody says, you know, here's a way you can be more effective and more um, advanced in it. We are like suckers for it <laughs> in a heartbeat in some ways, is that we try to move into those things. And I think this is a human tendency, is it's great that God has done this for me. Well, how can I participate in that more? Well, you can get circumcised and keep these dietary rules. Great. It's about me now and not about what God has done for me. And so one of the things we tried to nail is that God's, uh, uh, Paul's Evangelion, Paul's gospel, is first the news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And, and I think it was um, uh, Tim Keller, Via Rowe, and Williams who, who pointed this out, that the gospel is always first news before it's advice. The gospel is first news before it's advice. It's news of what God has done in Jesus Christ and how God has set the worlds to right in that way before it's advice on how to change and live your life. And uh, we've, we've talked about Luther a couple times because I think that Luther's interpretation of this still hangs large over us today. And I think there is, one, a good reason for that, but two, it may cloud us from hearing, first, what was originally meant in these passages, but second, what it might also be saying for us today. I don't think as many people live in the personal anxiety that Luther had in um, trying to perform his faith so that he could be accepted by God. And Paul and Luther are rightly against that, but I'm not sure that's the main driver today. And it certainly probably wasn't Paul's issue. Paul was happy to be thriving in Jerusalem, not, or in Judaism, not in anguish that he couldn't earn his salvation. Luther and Augustine before him inject that into this reading, and I think it's a very important thing that they did to correct church history, but is not maybe the most important thing for us today. Lest we forget it, don't. Um, uh, 
But Luther had this way of saying to his congregation uh, that, you know, we need to trust and believe in Christ. We need to trust and believe in Christ. And they said, okay, Luther, this is great. Um, you've told us that over and over and over again, that we shouldn't rely on our own efforts, that Christ frees us from anxiety and works, and that we can live freely with him. What's next? Uh, can you preach something else? And he said, I'll preach something else when you start believing it. Um, he wanted to be clear that, that unless you believed that, there was no something else that could come after it. And it's reassuring for us, because Luther's famous as preachers, that he'd repeated himself all the time, and we get to get away with it too. Thanks be to God. So, Paul's situation here with Galatia is about this Jewish-Gentile conflict, too, which sets it apart in some ways. We're going to go through some of the words before we walk through the passage that appear, but that, that Paul's um, uh, challenge here is a multi-ethnic community that's trying to divide itself along former lines and lines that um, come from this Judaic sort of heritage, too. And, and it doesn't seem like Paul is saying no to the Ten Commandments as much as he's saying no to dietary laws and circumcision, things which build laws, which walls which separate. Um, he's not against everything that is in the Old Testament, but against those things, these ritual markers that are coming back up again so that the table can be divided, that people can't be together, so that people can't worship together or eat together or be together as this new community Christ is calling into the world. And this is, this is part of where that separates it from Luther's anxiety about works, which Galatians surely addresses, but it's coming from a different context. So weird is it that it is not, was not really preached on or commentated on until Augustine, because uh, shortly after the first hundred years of church history, the Jewish-Gentile conflict fades to the background. And so the early church fathers and mothers that, that wrote from about 100 to 400 didn't read this part of Galatians that much because they still thought it had to do with that ethnic conflict. And what Luther and Augustine do with the wisdom of the Spirit of God is take it to say how it frees us from our interior anxiety in prisons, which is a good thing. This is just... Uh, I'm trying to defend Luther as much as I can because I think it's an important message. Hans-Dieter Betz, one of the most contemporary, well-known contemporary commentators in the book of, of Galatians, says, Luther speaks as Paul would have spoken had he lived at the time when Luther gave his lectures. What he's trying to say there is, if Paul had been confronted with what Luther was confronting, Luther, or Paul would speak the same word that Luther spoke using Galatians or other words with his background, that Paul is clearly against the type of things that Luther is also against. And when I say Luther, I, I want to be clear that this is a stand-in for most of, of, I think, a lot of what the gospel has become in contemporary evangelicalism or contemporary North American society and how we understand it. Um, Luther is where this sort of begins and Augustine before him, which is why they're contemporary stand-ins and important characters. But if you think like, what does this 1600s guy have to do with me? It's because that is still our predominant understanding of this passage. And as it says, is a good thing that it is. But the problem with it, and as we get through some of the words that I want us to take away from today, part of the problem with it is that we... Um, 400 years since Luther, that, that reading of this book has also, when we get to justification works of law, we're going to go through three words, but those two words in particular, um, 
have become ways in which we become anti-Jewish in ways that Paul surely didn't mean because we think that all they do is try to strive and earn their way into the kingdom. And in, in, strangely enough, we also become very anti-Catholic in the same ways, um, which again, for Luther's time probably makes sense, um, but today maybe not as much sense. But so the question that Paul is, is trying to answer in these first two chapters and for the rest of the book to some degree is, what will free us, justify us, rectify us, restore us, reconcile us to God? What is that which will move us from the realm of the present evil age to living in Christ? Paul is trying to answer that question. What the teachers who have come to Galatia that Paul is not a fan of, they've started to say it's this additive thing to this works of law. Jesus was great, but Jesus is only, in some sense, making a small doorway for Gentiles to get into what we've been doing all along. And so for them, there are these things that aren't... um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the news, what of God has done in Jesus Christ that is freeing and justifying people, but it is some sense coming back to human effort. So we'll start before we walk through the passage, and this is uh, uh, part of walking through the passage, so let's, uh, they're not cleanly divided today. It's this word justification. Now this word, um, I said last week, there's this common saying if you've lived in the church long enough is that your justification is just as if you had never sinned Um, what christ what god sees at you because of what christ has done in this courtroom analogy is he sees you as you had never sinned which is surely a good word it would be uh important for us to know that god has removed our sins in jesus christ this is Um, what he says at the end of this passage. This is not, so when I say that we want to expand the notion of justification, it's not to eliminate that. Um, N.T. Wright, another commentator on Paul today, often says he has no problem with what people mean by justification or saving or um, uh, faith versus works or sanctification um, today, that people use it for today. It's just not what Paul meant, which is to say we have this whole sort of world in which we interact with these things, which he doesn't have a problem with, but we need to at least hear what might have been meant in its context. So justification or rectification is, is this word that it has a legal connotation even in this context, in which there's a courtroom and now you are forgiven or justified of, of what you have done. You have been moved from one realm to the other. But what Paul and others want to point out and make clear is that this is not just a just as if I had never sinned, is you still being in the same spot. What Paul, or what God is doing in justification through Jesus Christ is setting us to right. It's more than just um, an eraser or a garbage can for our past lives, but it's the mechanism by which we are adopted into God's family and into God's new life. And what's incidentally important is that that, that Christ's Spirit comes into our heart and and we cry out, Abba, Father, is a major theme throughout these letters and how we become adopted to children of God's status. And yet, because of our contemporary, just as if I had never sinned, being the pinnacle of the gospel, we often forget that there's another step in which we become members of God's household, members of God's family, adopted into the community of faith. And that changes a lot more than just as if I had never sinned. It affects our standing in some ways. We are moved into a different relationship with things after this. 
um, we are adopted into a new way of being. The second word, uh, yes, I was way off on pages, just doing this from memory. That was Proverbs 3, by the way, that I was looking at, and not the correct, I wasn't actually looking at it, um, but it helps to be on the right page. Um, uh, yes, God, God and, and justification, one other thing before I move on, is it what makes us alive to God? Uh, I don't know, is anybody a typist where to justify something is to move the, the column to, to make it, it, it's not just like just as if I had ever sinned, but it in some sense sets things to right. Yeah, it puts them in a different uh, spot. It, it, it realigns them in a way. That's, that's what's happening in justification. Works, now works is this one that I think is important, going back to that Luther and our contemporary mind discussion, which is that Paul is advocating against works of law, ritual segments of Jewish law that are fragmenting into the new community of believers. And not only what he's pointing out to Peter in the previous passage um, is that they're not even practicing this that well. They're kind of like layering in some old things to keep purity around the table, but not actually going full bore into like, let's re-be Jews. They're, they're amended it with Christ to some degree, but they're not amending it fully with Christ. They're kind of, and Paul is sort of turning the tables. They're saying, you haven't given them enough. What he's saying to them is that you haven't taken on Christ enough. But this, again, in the faith and works thing, is that we think all works are bad, where you are justified only what Christ has done. But what Paul is trying to argue is all works we think that can rectify us or justify us are bad, not all works are bad. Uh, the passage that Brian read for us during the service, uh, uh, singing time, where Ma Jesus in Matthew's gospel says, so that your good works might shine among them. Did Jesus not get the memo? There are no good works that we're supposed to be doing to be saved. It's, it's only that we are supposed to be accepting what God has done for us. What Paul, and as you will see as we get to the end of the book, where he talks about what the life is filled with the Spirit, which he also does in Ephesians and several of his other letters. Uh, Romans 12 is another famous example of this. As you are brought into this new realm, which I think is one of the more powerful ways to look at what Paul is doing, is there's a present evil age. How are we being brought into a new age with Christ? There are things that go along with that. But they are not checkbox works of law that divide the table or the community, but a new way of life that has been infused to us by the Spirit, that we live in that way. Um, and so Paul's enemy here isn't works in the ways that we think of them always, but it more as, as covenantal piety. The one thing I wanted to say in, in, in relation to contemporary, this helps set boundary markers, and what boundary markers do is they both increase anxiety, I think, and lower anxiety. And I can tell you, as we attempt to be a church, a people bound together across all various lines, um, whenever I think about this person or that person or this thing coming or leaving or saying something, it produces anxiety, and that's because it's this boundary marker thing that they were able to sort of set these up. And, and you could see if it's a legalistic one, which it might have been, you just get more and more. You know, I keep the dietary law and the festivals. Well, I keep the dietary laws and the festivals and circumcision. Well, I keep this, and it becomes very complex to know when's enough if you're doing it that way. 
And this is where I think it's important for us to remember that, that one of the things we try to rehearse at Defiance Church is that we are freed from anxiety with the gospel. So much of our world trades on our anxiety. It wants to make us more anxious. But how do we free ourselves from this present anxious age? Uh, instead of evil age, you could read, God has come to free us from this anxious age um, and sent us in the realm of his son. So for Paul, what is the solution to justification? What makes justification and what makes um, us, pulls us away from works is faith. It's this covenant way of knowing and trusting who his God is. And faith, um, uh, we read as just faith, but <laughs> faith translates to faith. Um, deep words with Pastor Matt. Um, uh, there's, it's a trusting into, it's a believing into, it's a loyalty. Paul, earlier he said, well, how are you defecting from the gospel that I preached? It's in this way, it's again, the church is, as Paul is forming it in the world, is a socio-political economic entity. So when he says, are you having faith into this thing, he means, are you having loyalty and trusting into this thing? Are you, um, Dale Bruner translates faith often as believing into Christ. Are we leaning into that? Faith is the badge by which we have moved from one to the other. But he says this, we who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by works of law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law, because the works of law, by works of law, no one will be justified. Um, so we're going to start moving through the passage, but this loaded one, uh, he starts with we because he's talking about that conversation he had with Peter. We who are Jews by birth, are not, but he's having this conversation in front of, by the reading of the letter, uh, sinful Gentiles, um, which I'm sure that one of them must be offended. They're like, what did he call us? Um, uh, but he's saying now it, with Peter in front of them, in some sense with his arm around Peter's shoulder, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of law. In the psalm that we read today, there alludes to that too, is that you are not justified by what you do. There's no justification. We need God to free us. And so in some sense, he's saying, we've known that all along. We don't get justified by works of law. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of law, but because of the works of the law of the one who, uh, law, no one will be justified. Um, the problem, uh, and I want to expand this passage with these blue sections, is this is still connected to faith. The um, faith sadly becomes a work in, in the way that we talk about it in the modern world. Faith becomes our possession and sort of a work. Did you do the work of faith? How do I know I'm saved? Because I have faith. And quickly, that sort of faith can turn into a faith by which we think we are saving ourselves. And not only that, then we begin to think, do I have enough faith to be among the saved? Now, this translation here, which I did not do, but it's footnoted in most of your Bibles. So if you have an NIV from 2012, this alternative translation is footnoted there. Uh, if you have an ESV, I believe it's footnoted in some of them, but not all of them. If you have an NRSV, it's footnoted. But if you have Hampton's Bible, if you guys remember Hampton, the Net Bible, it's actually translated this way. So, uh, and then 
at my, my last church was an older church when I gave this sermon. I said, in, in goodness and greatness, the King James also translated it. Not faithfulness of Jesus Christ, but faith of Jesus Christ, at least. So the dominant English translation for 300 years also was the faith of Christ. So I'm going to read it again. And what changed is that blue. So from faith in Jesus Christ, we have been saved to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not saved by works of law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ or the faith of Jesus Christ. So we too put our faith in Christ that we may be justified on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of law. Because, the works of, because by works of law, no one will be justified. This changes this passage, and so that we participate into Christ's faith. We don't generate our own faith. We participate into his. And this continues with the passage, again, what we sold, is that it is Christ's faith that is living within us when we put aside the flesh, not our faith that's living inside of us. We begin to live in the way that Christ would live in the world. Um, Michael Gorman, and so I am not a Greek scholar. Michael Gorman is, and Michael Gorman advocates, he's probably one of the more famous advocators for this translation today. Um, first, he says it expresses the most natural translation of the Greek phrase. I have to take his word for that. Uh, my Greek is not good enough to debate him or people who advocate for the other. But it makes God, rather, rather than God and Christ, the consistent object of faith for Paul. It is parallel in form and content to the faith of Abraham in Romans 4.12 and 4.16. So the Greek phase is, is pistis Christus, um, and in Romans we have pistis uh, Abraham, I don't know in Greek at the moment, but we would translate that, if we didn't translate this faith of Christ, we would translate that faith in Abraham, and that doesn't really work even in Romans. We don't have faith in Abraham, we're talking about the faith of Abraham. Uh, it can be given coherent sense as a reference to Christ's faith or faithfulness expressed in death, uh, expressed in death in the overall structure of Paul's experience in theology, making the most fundamental basis, this is the most important, fundamental basis of our salvation, not anthropocentric, our faith, but theocentric and Christocentric, Christ's faith. It takes that, that work that we can call our faith and says, no, it is Christ's faith that is more salvific than our own and it grounds Paul's emphasis on the inseparability of faith and love in the one faithful and loving act of Christ on the cross, is that these things are connected there. Um, this is the word of faith that, that, that Paul thinks we can have, and it's us participating. I don't think it makes sense to completely get rid of faith in Jesus Christ, particularly if you go back to this one, or even this one, sorry. Um, so we too have put our faith in Christ. Uh, it's still in the passage. But we're putting our faith in is not our own faith in Christ, but the faithfulness participation of that in Christ. Now, I know I'm going over this quite fast, but if you have some time this week to sit and to think with that, I think you can find it's freeing in a whole new way to live your life in faith. It's not all bent on me. I don't have to question, am I faithing enough in Jesus? But in fact, God through Christ has opened up something for me to enter into in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The sanctification, I just wanted to put up there for fun. No. Um, 
sanctification and justification are the two ways we often understand these in Protestantism. Half of your Christian life is becoming a Christian, and that is justification. The other half is moving into Christ, which is sanctification. Uh, I would just say that Paul doesn't think in this way. These are two um, movements at the same time. So uh, I did not um, grow up in a realm or ever really participate in one that had these two things separated. But if you did, um, I think some goodness can come from that, but I do think it's worth also hearing again that what actually is going on is one movement, not two movements. You're not justified, and then you go off and work on your sanctification um, because that would turn into sort of its own work, but you are in this one movement being brought into right relationship with God the Father. Uh, that's a question from the Catechism. Um, that's the first passage we went to. Uh, but in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners. Does that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would be a lawbreaker. Here Paul is continuing that rhetorical argument about if we accept what Christ has done for us as Jews and we go among those people we don't think are clean, does that mean Christ is making us sinners? And what Paul wants to say is absolutely not. Um, because what we have already seen in Christ is that has been destroyed in his death and resurrection. And there's a bit in Paul, in Galatians and other letters, in which Christ dies unto the law. He dies as one in the law. And so the life he gives us afterwards is free from that. Um, and so you can't rebuild the law which he died to. Um, in Galatians, he's going to say, God sent a man born under the law at the fullness of time. Um, so that we can rebuild new distinctions around that. But this is the last passage, which is perhaps the most critical. For through the law I died, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, or you could translate that, I have been co-crucified, or I am being co-crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved himself and gave himself for me. I do not set aside uh, the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If we could rectify ourselves in some way other than the death of Christ, then Christ died for nothing is that last portion. But what Paul here is, is, is talking about is the way in which he no longer lives in himself, but it is Christ who lives in him. This is sort of um, why we sang it with Jonathan leading us in that, I think, uh, as I read it now, that song sits with you, is because it's something that when you begin to speak about it, it begins to almost make it cheaper and cheaper. It's something, one of those things you really sort of live and lean into. That God, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me. That the life I now live in this body I live by the faith of the Son of God, faith in the Son of God, who loved himself and gave himself for me. Um, this is the heart of the gospel, is that in, in, in one of the things I always try to reclaim here is our baptismal identity, which Paul is not directly referring to here, but you can see it, is that in baptism we go into the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. In it we are raised to new life again. So it is not that old self that lives, but the new one that lives in this world. We are rescued out of the present evil age and brought into a new plane of existence. And that, in some ways, can change everything. To close the sermon is the quote on the back of the bulletin. This um, book is uh, 
uh, one that I just recently picked up, in which he sort of defines the gospel in this short way. Um, God is love. And if you're like me, you're like, you've got to say a lot more than that, um, because love is not something directed. Um, and I love that he follows up with that. The love that is God is crucified love. We are called to friendship with the risen Jesus. These are each, I think, four different points. Um, we cannot love God if we do not love each other. This is the new body that Paul's trying to build in the world, that we can't love God if we don't begin to love each other. We live out our love from the community created by the Spirit. Christians are those who belong to a community together. They live in that community and bond of the Spirit together. And he said, that's it. That is what Christianity is all about. Now believe it and live it as your life depended on it, because it does. Let us pray. God, you have instructed us faithfully through your words to the Galatians. Allow us to hear how we are being rescued from this present age. Of trying to save ourselves, of trying to have it all, of trying to perform in these ways. Or how we, too, are those who preach that we can't be in fellowship with these others. God, we ask that we can see the boundary-breaking love that you've shown in your Son and the restoration that comes with it. And to live in that fullness, not just as individuals, but as the churches you've placed throughout the world. To live as those who have died, but it is now you who live in us. As we grapple with this present evil age, we too know we are freed from it and now reside with you. I ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.